Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels. It can also generate income in both the near and long term, like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations. Check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Episode number 25 of the Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. And today, continuing our tour of Texas as my family leaves to head north to Montana. And this tour stop is close to my home in Dripping Springs, Texas. And Russell Cunningham is our is our man today. And he's going to tell us about archaeology, about amateur archaeology, but about a passion for the history of his state of Texas, his home place of Dripping Springs, and his uh, lineage, which is hunting. Here's a man who has found thousands, maybe one of the largest amateur collections of arrowheads in the United States. He has collected uh, artifacts from around the West. He has collected uh, paintings, and he has collected art that all point back to one place. They point back, they point back to his appreciation of history and of the cultures that led us to where we are now. Most specifically, the cultures that lived the place he's lived his entire life. Uh, he's as much a part of this land as anyone else. His family has cultivated this land over many generations. He has lived there for most of his entire life. And now he's raising his kids there. And it just so happens to be you can go pretty close to their backyard and find airheads that are 3,000 years old and speak to us about a culture of people that live in Texas. So enjoy my friend Russell his amateur archaeology career, and the collection that he has amassed. That is impressive. Episode number 25. Come in at you. Russell, this is your first podcast ever. First one, Virgin. The Virgin? Well, we'll get you through it. 
We got a lot of interesting stuff to cover, of course. Um, but first, I always like to have people describe where we are because we don't, we have no video here. So give us a quick description of the room we're sitting in. So uh, be as detailed as you please because there's a lot of stuff in here. Well, we're in uh, my dream home on the ranch I grew up on. Um, the room is uh, was planned to be the Indian room. And so growing up, all the artifacts I, that I had been finding – uh, I had a dream of putting them in a room, which would be someone's uh, similar to a study, but yeah. I've done all, all the studying I need to do. So <laughs> it's, uh, it, all the walls have either have, you know, either great big mule deer or pre-reservation bow and arrow quivers, um, arrows with trade points, lots of arrowheads that we found on the ranch. Um, lots of stones, grinding stones, um, a couple old bison heads that, that predate the bison bison and, uh, mainly just artifacts that my family and I have collected over the years. Yeah. Would you label yourself an artifact collector or how would you label yourself as a, in general in that space? Yeah, I guess a amateur archeologist of sorts, <laughs> uh, but yeah, a collector. Definitely. I yeah. just, can't get enough of the prehistoric hunter is that what drove you to collecting i mean would you call it a collection or more just an exploration of one the place you live this ranch which is beautiful but two just kind of that connection like you say to our ancestors yeah both i mean it's i love to collect um i like to to show people what we find what we're looking for out here what we're seeing there's so few people that actually get to experience what we get to experience. And my kids, um, my kids are six and nine, two girls, and they found more airheads than most men yeah. will ever find. And uh, we're just in it so deep. It's just part, of, it's just a passion that I have. And it's, and it's the same passion that I have for hunting. It's, uh, it's hard to describe unless, you know, you're a, you're a true hunter yourself. Well, I think when you see, what's in front of us on this table or hopefully I'll let folks get a good look at the way that you dig, what you dig for, but then at the same time, how you display it and the reverence with which, I mean, in this room, you're displaying the things you've found. And we were talking before this, I grew up, my dad and I uh, relic hunted my entire childhood. And he had the same kind of way of displaying his finds it was mostly Civil War era artifacts and things. But the the same reverence that you could see that's sitting in this room, you can tell by the way you've displayed the things you found, the reverence you have for it, and how important it is to you that it's appreciated. Uh, it's evident in these displays. Well, thank you. It's A lot of, of time has gone into to finding the points, and then, like you said, just the way they're displayed, it's uh, it's uh. I almost want people to think when they come in here to be able to put themselves back five, six, eight thousand years ago. Yeah. And to look at each point and wonder where that point's been, who made it, the the weather that was going on at the time, and the struggles that the those peoples that were were having at the time that uh or or not struggling. I mean, the people probably had it a lot better than we did in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Yeah, each piece, I mean, as you take them, we'll go through kind of 
how you came to, to, to be an amateur archaeologist and how you came to be on this piece of land. But we, we went for a little ride to look at one of your uh, sites where you're, you're currently finding heads, arrowheads. And it is clear to me that all those things are relevant to you. When you find a piece, the first thing you said to me when I picked up my first arrowhead over there was the last time somebody had their hands on that was probably 3,000 years ago. And that's um, something I hope it's not lost on me. And I'm even looking around here, I'm geeking out and want to ask questions about every little piece of stone that you got here. Um, and so I hope everybody listening to this can can realize the amount of history that is built into hunting, the amount of history that is built into what we're doing. Uh, it's built in our genetic code, for lack of a better way to describe it. And so, yeah, this being even for your little girls to grow up in a place where they're so connected to 3000 years prior is, is really unbelievable to me. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you just to, to find out why or how you got here. Maybe you don't even know why, but how you got to this point in your life. Well, I think if, if anyone had the opportunity, um, I think we all hunters would would be in this room geeking out over this, and and they'd probably have yeah. a room just like it if they had that that opportunity. And and uh, you and I are talking about um, earlier that my philosophy in life is to get off the couch. You cannot, you can't do all this if you're sitting on the couch. And yeah. it, but uh, the DNA that we share with these ancient hunters is what drives us and everyone shares it whether it you know it comes out more so and others is is evident it certainly does but uh i can't imagine just you know seeing where these people lived and seeing and picking up an airhead and not yeah. just being completely intrigued yeah with what went on five thousand years ago in this area and what was each specific style of point made for you know, some of these points are seven inches long and some of them are yeah. seven millimeters long. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable the variances in, in all the heads that you have here and all the artifacts, but just the variances in the people and the way they lived by, by generation of hunter, you know, by type of people, by where they lived. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's, you've got arrowheads here that are the size of quarters and then you've got points here that are as long as, you know, for lack of a better term, like a Snickers bar, yeah. as long as one of those, but six inches long. And so every one of these pieces, I think, is an answer to a question or at least some evidence that'll help you answer a question that we all should have, uh, which is how does this, how did this happen? You know, it's, I think maybe foolhardy or it's some fool's errand to try to compare our modern hunting to this in a direct way. It's so far removed. Right. Um, these ancient hunters are so far removed from us, but they have so much to teach us that, um, yeah, we could, we could talk about this all day, but take me through how you came to be on this land, your family's history. And then we'll, we'll start talking about specific, some of these really interesting pieces. So when we, when I was about 10, we moved out because our, our little farm out in, uh, Brown Rock, Texas, which is, uh, North of Austin, uh, town kind of got a little close so we decided to move further out and we found this area out uh southwest of austin in the hill country dripping springs area um 
we were able to, it was so far out back then. It was just a big, you know, bunch of cedar. And so we were able to get this ranch and, and if, uh, over the last 30 years have been improving it, removing cedar, developing the springs. And, and as we've been doing so, um, it wasn't long after I was about 11 years old when we f- found our first, uh, true mound is what we call it. It's a uh, Indian camp yeah. and started finding points and, um, have been just completely, uh, taken by the thought and the, the, the chase and the, what's next, what's behind the next rock and, um, what am I going to find next and what were these Indians doing and the whole deal. And so, um, the ranch is about 700 acres and we have almost a mile of Barton Creek running through it. We have yeah. both sides of Barton. And then, um, every several hundred yards, there's a, a feeder Creek that's spring fed. So it's just the perfect environment to, to camp nowadays to, and back then for these Indians to survive yeah. great water. Um, and that's the key is, is the water source. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, on the, near the Edwards plateau and in the, the bison were uh, roaming through here, probably not as much as a little South of us because it's a little more hilly, but, uh, they had lots of deer. They had plenty to eat. And, uh, you know, every site that we find is just a beautiful campsite that we'd want to hang out in, yeah. you know, great cover and just beautiful, big old trees. And, um, so the family's, uh, had this place for, you know, 30 years or so. And, and that's what we do. We hunt, we fish and we look for airheads <laughs> and we found a lot of them, <laughs> yeah. thousands I'm, of them. I would say how many total you think you found in your lifetime? Oh, I'd Upwards of five thousand, I would imagine, on this property. Um, between here and and uh, within five miles of here, I get wow. people that'll call me and and yeah. have sites that you know we'll look at. But have you ever took stock at your entire collection or the family's collection as to how big it is or or where it ranks in the the you know list of biggest airhead collections or most uh, stylish? There's there's a huge subculture now that we've gotten into it. I've gotten to know some of the, some of the people that have the biggest collections of, of perishables, um, cave finds, um, in the nation. And we've been, we've, we've, my family and I have been able to see their private collections, which the Smithsonian wants lots of the pieces that they have. And, uh, frankly, most of the private collections have the best stuff. Um, but you know, as far as an amateur, you know, I've, I've probably certainly have one of the biggest collections in this area. Sure. But uh, just because there's, it's hard work finding these. Yeah. And uh, there's not many people that'll uh, get off the couch, <laughs> be, get out <laughs> get, there and get it done. Get off the couch. Yeah. I mean, you started hunting and finding airheads around the same time when you were a kid. I mean, it was all just what you did. Yeah. That's what we're, we, my brother's two years older than I, and, and we would be, um, you know, like most kids then, nowadays it's a different story, but we would be gone at sun up. We'd either be riding horses or we'd be digging airheads. And dad would pretty much know where to find us. He'd either, <laughs> we'd be down there digging or if the horses were gone, he'd see us at dark, you know. But yeah, so that's lots of time spent. And it's great, great family stuff. I mean, my brother and I have great memories digging. And yeah. and, and now my my little girls and my wife love it. 
the girls are making mud pies and, and my wife is, is coming through the dirt with me and yeah, it's a, it's a neat deal. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Um, to see the work you put into it. I mean, it's easy to come into a room like this and, and kind of feel the artistry of it, your own artistry and creating the presentation of the stuff, but the artistry of the, the folks that made this so many generations ago, it's easy to see that, but then we go out to your dig site, to your mound and you see all the work you put in, in the Texas summertime. That's amazing. Yeah, it's hot, man. It is hot. And we come back just drenched, but each so, each point is just... You ever sat it. down and had a whiskey in this room? Thought, why? Why? Really, why? You know you know why. It's fun. It's, it's You know, we could talk about why, but why? Why the passion is so... Yes. It gets pretty deep in here. Uh, I'll come and sit in here with, with those that are as passionate as you are about hunting. Yeah. And that's when it gets neat is when, uh, you know, we, we start thinking about, um, yeah, why, why we're, why are we here? Um, you know, in, in a sense, we're here to serve the Lord. That's one reason, but how, but why did he, why do we have cars and these guys were banging out Flint? I mean, um, they were hard workers and, and, um, I can't imagine living like they did, but I think that they probably had it easier than we do. Yeah. But why, why were they here and why so many points? Why did they lay this perfect point down that has not a scratch on it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, each one of these, we're both holding arrowheads now. And I wanted to, cause you could just look at this and each little piece of it, each detail tells something about someone oh, somewhere. Yeah. And if you let it speak to you, I'm sure it does. And so I imagine I knew the answer to that question, but for, for folks listening to think about uh, why you're out there on a Sunday afternoon sweating your balls off, right. <laughs> digging, digging for arrowheads, what does it mean at the end of the day? Yeah, what 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 gives me the drive to go? I mean, it's not gold. These no. things, no. someone may come in and offer me a you know, hefty chunk of change, but it wouldn't, it, it'd be essentially getting paid 50 cents an hour for all the hours I put into it. I mean, yeah. it's, they're priceless to me, but they're not really worth all that much. What about money. your, uh, your dad? Is he still, does he get after it pretty good? He, with you? Dad loves, loves to see it and talk about it and sit in here and, and, uh, and have a tea or something. Um, and, and look at it and he feels that the gravity of it and he can feel the, the, uh, culture, but, He's, he'd rather not go dig in the heat. He never has really <laughs> cared much to, I don't think he's ever found an airhead. Oh, really? But it's cool because he gets to live that through us. So essentially he doesn't have to, he can, yeah. he can have a cold beer and not sweat and still get the same enjoyment out of it. That's smart. Yeah. That's smart. <laughs> um, so we kind of, you know, we know what you're doing here and, and can, we'll just talk more about why, um, but how? I mean, when you're 11, you find an arrowhead. Um, it's cool, right? Pick it up. That's cool. Arrowhead. Take me through how you have gotten to the point where you're out there with a giant sifter and a cat and you're digging, you know, how big was the site we were just at? I was probably 100 yards by 60 yards. And how deep will you dig when you dig? We'll, we'll get through about five feet. I average. I'd so, say. That's so a that's, a lot, of, that's a lot. That's a lot of, of earth moving. So I mean, take me it, through how you get, you know, obviously yeah. you, your passion will lead you to that, this extreme way that you do it, but it takes you through that. So when I was a kid finding them and, and digging, the, the excitement of 
really, I would, I was like, you know, I, I really would like to know who made this and, and all, but really it's like, how many can I get? I'm, yeah. I'm going to come home with 10 and see what kind of different shapes. I knew nothing about the cultures, the shape uh, of the base kind of tells you what culture it is, how old the point is. Like the Clovis has the, the flute in it. We don't have any Clovis on the ranch, but I'm sure they're here, but we hadn't found them. But then, you know, as I got older, started reading more about it, going to the shows and learning about how they cooked and uh, what they ate, how they actually hafted or put the point onto the to the stick in the the shaft and the atlatl versus the bow and arrow, yeah. and really getting into digging deep and reading and and getting with the bigwigs in the in the the culture of this artifact hunting and learning so much more about it. And and the more I know now, the the more I want to get out in the field and see the evidence of this. And so we're talking about how they cooked and in this country, they, they would uh, cook a lot like, like the Mexicans cook cabrito. They'd dig a big hole, build a big fire, coals on it, put, uh, put in big stones and then cover it with grass, acorns, then grass, and then cover that with dirt and let it cook for up to 72 hours. And they'd come out and the rocks would be broken up in what's called midden. And over the, over the different cook cycles, it would just build a big mound of, of broken rock. And so the sites are a lot easier to find in this country than they are in North Texas or than they are in, in uh, Arizona or, or Colorado or, or East. And so, it's not uh, as hard to find the sites. And so um, once we're, once we find the site, then we can kind of, we know where most of the points are and, and uh, we can kind of go to them and see what they've been eating. Lots of bison bones, lots of uh, coon, fox, coyote jaws, rabbits, all kinds of neat stuff. It's unbelievable. Is there, you know, as you go through, your collections and as you started to gather more things and wanted to travel, was there a want to can just continue to stay here and find out more about these people or go out into other parts of the country and, you know, connect the dots to the ancient hunters that were here or the ancient hunters that might've been in New Mexico or Arizona or wherever. I'm always looking to, to expand, uh, my knowledge base on the different cultures. Well, you know, we, we can call them tribes in the, in the historic sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the cultures go back beyond the prehistoric. Um, but every time I go hunting, I take one of these arrowheads with me uh, and I go, I, I go a lot of places hunting and I talk to the guides and all of them are, it seems there's some sort of connection that they're artifact hunters. Yeah. And um, the culture out in New Mexico, um, the pottery makers, the members culture is, is very intriguing to me. And, and for these guys to be making these beautiful pots a thousand years ago is just amazing. And, um, the, the little earrings that we've, the shell earrings that, that I've found, um, in some of their ruins while we're elk hunting in the big, huge pottery shards that just tell a story of its own. These guys were trading shells and all from, from the, the West coast um, and some caves that I've been in and in West Texas, finding some amazing stuff, braided 
um, rope and yeah, those sandals, sandals on the wall there, amazing thousand year old sandals that we're we're finding in pack rat nests and unbelievable. Um, these they're all tied. I mean these these cultures that's the Castile culture there out of the caves in West Texas. They're about eleven hundred years old. These guys are communicating and trading and with the the Indians in our country. I, I would certainly imagine, and we do see proof of that. They're trading um, shell conch shells from the Texas coast all the way up here, but the the shells that we see traded from California coast all the way here to Central Texas is just amazing how yeah. that makes it the network. So they're all tied. Yeah, I tell you so much. I mean, I'm sure it all comes back to this piece of ground for you, though, just because you spent so much time digging here. Um, and the in the site that we went to today, it was interesting to me how you identified where the airheads might be or where the artifacts might be. So take people through how you walk on a barren piece of ground in a creek and on your ranch in Texas, and how you come to know that there's relics or artifacts there. And then once you've determined that in your mind, how you find them and then continue to find them and um, how you sift through to find the ones you want and, and what that process looks like. So the, I get this question a lot is, well, I don't even know. Can you? I've got this place on my land and I just want to know if there's an airhead out there. And Really, what it comes down to is to find a spring, a healthy spring that the best time to find a really healthy spring is in the, during a drought. And if that's still running then you could almost picture the Indians being there. Yeah. And so we'll find a spring first and then from the spring, we'll just, we'll just make uh, a big walk, you know, we'll just walk around and we'll look for those pieces of broken midden rock. And that's evidence of, of them having cook sites there and broken Flint. And if you can find a little piece of that, then, We'll dig some test holes, and if the test holes bring up more midden rock and more pieces of flint, then at that point we know that we're on a site, and then we'll clear it, um, get all the cedar off because the cedar in this country is, is everywhere. And then once we uh, once we know that that's where we're going to dig, then we have come a long way. I used to just hand dig everything, and now we have a table that has a motor on it, and it's offset drive shaft that. Um, we engineered um, through the help of uh, Jimmy Lovejoy, my my uh, digging buddy, um, and we'll take we'll go around the midden where the where where they would probably be been living. The, the midden is more where they're cooking. There's going to be a lot of points in there, but the good stuff that's not broken is going to be out where they're actually living and and uh, working. Generally, it'll be on the on the uh, southeast side because the prevailing winds are southwest. Sure. So they're going to be out of the smoke, and we'll start there, and we'll just trench. We'll dig a big trench, and then we'll find the habitation layer. And and uh, when we were looking at it earlier, the snails would come in and get the organic matter after the the Indians had left. And so there's generally a line of occupation, is what we call it. And once once we find that. We'll go below that and another six inches so we're not missing anything, and we'll dig that whole area one bucket at a time with a bobcat, put it on the table. It sifts. We sift all the midden rock and, and all out, and then uh, we'll find the points from there. And then we'll put them in a bucket, and at the end of the day, we'll put them out on the back of the tailgate of the truck and have a cold beer and, and talk about 
every time we'll talk about what what were these Indians doing and wow yeah. we're actually getting us to do this the first people that have touched this in 5000 years and and we'll have that discussion over a cold beer and yeah we'll sort the points out the broken ones will go in a box and the the whole pretty ones will be displayed for everyone to see <laughs> do you imagine that uh one thing that struck me you know you've got a nice ranch here do you imagine that your place is much different than every other ranch in this part of the country with open ground that you've just over the time known what to look for and become passionate and that's why you found the amount of heads you have or is you know you, you said there's there's water that runs through your place for sure but um uh, you imagine that there's so many of these sites so much of this information that we could glean and and probably should glean in some way that just goes uh goes unfound because there's no one to to see it oh uh, absolutely well even there's so many of these sites about every 600 yards in this country down Onion Creek or Barton Creek, and these are some of the bigger creeks in the region. The Barton Creek runs all the way down into Austin. But there's so many of these sites uh, that if you have a property with a spring on it, you have a you do have a campsite on it. But a lot of these camps that I'm digging, I've known about for 30 years, and I'm just coming up. I'm talking to the landowners, and I'm showing them my Indian room. I bring them out to the ranch, and they they see what's there, and then they still won't dig it. And, then, and I'll ask maybe, well, I'll dig it with them and then I'll give them 50% of the points. So lots of people have the, the middens or the camps on their place, but it's a matter of want to and drive. They get out there and, and dig for an hour and and it's hot and it's a ton of work and they're over it. Yeah. And I can't get over it. Um, <laughs> it's like Steve Rinella or, or Ben O'Brien climbing the, to hunt yeah. it's like the big one the big animal is not killed right off the road the big one's killed back in there where no one else wants to go and then when when, when you get further back there and it's the last day and if if you just have enough energy to get over one more mountain range or one more mountain that's where the big one is yeah and it's the last day and the last hour and the last light and i guarantee you that Ben O'Brien and Steve Rinella are up there with their glasses until last light. And that's what it's like for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, that's what strikes me about all people that, you know, you don't sit in a room like this without having some ridiculous passion for the thing. Right. Um, you just don't. And you don't come to the point you've come to as an amateur archaeologist. I love that term. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent 
who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. You just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Um, yeah, I'm like, I think I'm like an amateur whiskey taster. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the right. I got a certificate one time. I yeah. Um, but you don't get to that point without having that drive, without wanting to know that. And you were talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, there's in, in some circles, there's thought that digging this could be controversial because you may disturb some kind of evidence that could be found or talk about that a little bit. You know, I know that's probably a sensitive subject for you, but I think it's important for people to hear, you know, your passion is coming through in this stuff and the respect for these artifacts and the fact that they're seen by many people that come in your home. Um, I think that's important for people to know because I know there are probably some that would ask, why don't you just leave them in the ground? Yeah. Right, and it, so it's a non-renewable resource, essentially. And the the archaeologists are amazing. That's what I wanted to do as a kid, you know, when I was 10 or 11. But, um, you know, my path went a different direction. But it is extremely important to, to know what went on and, and how it went on. But they, the archaeologists in this region have studied it so extensively that these camps are very common and, and they, they don't want, you know, they, they don't have any more use to come find out what they already know. Lots of their stuff gets displayed appropriately, which is awesome. And, 
Um, but there's tons of it that they're still studying and, and that the general public will never see, ever. And a lot of these folks won't even make it to a museum to see it. So the amount of people that have been in this room or been to the ranch and, and have looked and talked about this stuff would never have done it without this stuff coming up out of the ground and by me getting it out. And um, it's I feel it's so important for us to dig this stuff up and to share with the world um, like we're doing now. I've never heard a podcast on Airheads. Me either. Me either. I'm so, sure they're so, out there. So, well, a lot of podcasts. So congrats, Maybe not. But, Maybe we're breaking ground. I'm glad if that's the case. But, but yeah, no. But, you know, the, they're getting displayed. We're talking about it. We're sharing this part of our history um, with with the world. Whereas, uh, you know, they may, the, again, the archaeologists do a tremendously great job about, you know, um, putting the, the word out and showing what's going on in museums and all, but, but it's hard to get to. Yeah. You couldn't get to this. I mean, the amount yeah. of, of things that you have here and some of the great finds that you have. Um, and that brings, that's a good segue. It brings us to, you know, what you have and what you've learned because there's a lot that you've learned. <laughs> um, we got a dog visitor here bringing us a ball throw. <laughs> um, what you have and what you've learned. Because you've learned a lot about these ancient cultures. You've learned a lot about these periods in time that are important for us all to know about. So the biggest part of me wanting to sit down with you was to, to, to harvest and get out of you all the things that you've learned about. Not only how to find these things and why you might do it, but the people. You know, you sitting and having that beer, that's a good visual for everybody. Looking at these heads and tr- in, in your own mind with your own knowledge trying to understand what this connects to because we all have that connection so take me through the types of people that lived here um how far back you know let's probably start with the the oldest civilizations that lived here that you're aware of and then take me back through kind of how how that all steps up and what you've learned that could be so there's i know there's evidence of certainly evidence in this area of the clovis culture which was thought to be the oldest culture in north america um, so whether they came across the, the land bridge or they came from, from Europe bouncing down through the, across the ice cap to, to the East coast, there is a huge area on the East coast with tons of, of Clovis camps. And so some archeologists think that they came across in, in boats to the East coast. And then that's why there's so many camps over there. And then from there, they followed the waterways west. And the other, the other ones say that they came across the Bering land bridge, came down and followed the rivers. And then they ended up on the East coast and they couldn't go anywhere else. And that's why there's so many camps there. But from there, um, the Clovis culture died out. Okay, the the Paleo Indians died out, the Folsom and all that group, and then they repopulated. And there's evidence in in this area that after the repopulation, the transitional Paleo and all about eight thousand years, they lived here all the way up until the Comanches. So the culture that we're finding the most of the prehistoric 
about 6,000 years till um, all the way up through the Comanche points, uh, true arrowheads. So they were using what we call dart points. They were hafted to a long shaft and uh, hurled with an atlatl. And yeah, describe an atlatl for those who are not aware. So it's like the the chuck it deal that you throw to your dog. You <laughs> yeah, know? that's a good word to describe that way. And that's so the, the, these Indians made that. They didn't make the billions of dollars that this chuck it guy is, right? <laughs> I mean, why did not think of that? But uh, so it's a long shaft. The air, at the end, the flint point is on a, a stick about six inches long. That goes into the shaft. And then the the stick that ladle is about a foot long, and it has a little hook on the end, and and it's and it, you use it to hurl to get more kinetic energy. When the shaft hits the animal, this the point stays in the animal. The big shaft comes out, and they run, grab their shaft, pick up another tip, and put it in, and and just follow and track. And um, they can be accurate. That the guys that do it now for fun can they can hit targets at a hundred yards with these things. Wow! So they figured that these hunters that did it every day growing up their whole lives, they needed to be good at it. Could be accurate to a hundred yeah. yards. Do you know how they would fashion the shaft or what wood? Yeah, the they would, uh, they're, you know, they'd use a lot of the cane along the, the rivers and creeks and to straighten them, they'd heat them in the fire and then they'd just bend it. And then as it cooled, it would stay in that shape. And then from there, they would use asphaltum to connect the the flint tip. And asphaltum is, uh, it's either they could use tree sap or um, you can, what I think of asphaltum is when you're on the beach and there's those big tar balls that come up. And that's natural. I'm sure there's more of it since we've been, you know, digging or drilling, but They'll use that, heat it up, and then fasten that. And as that cools, that becomes hard. And uh, so that there's no getting it off at that point. So if they broke uh, the tip of the arrowhead, they could re-sharpen the, the arrowhead while it's still on that stick. And we sh- we see evidence of that in all of these points, re-sharpening. Um, but oftentimes, if that stick broke, then that, that point's useless at that point because they couldn't. They couldn't, re- yeah. They couldn't repair it. Yeah. So lots of these points just laying around. I'm sure a lot of that had to do with it. Why would they just leave these perfect points in camp? Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. It's probably yeah. another rabbit hole. Why Why are so many of them left behind um, in the way that they are? And I'm sure there's lots of reasons. For yeah, that. and they're perfect. Yeah. Weight, I think it, we talked about it's one of them. The, the Folsom peoples were some of the most nomadic paleo folks. And, and because of that, they're their points were super thin and, yeah. and they think it's just because of weight. But uh, back to where we were going with that is, so it started with the paleo Indians right here. There's paleo sites all through North America, paleo, the Clovis, the Folsom, Angostura. So did uh, they, were Plain those Dia. all intermingled civilizations or did they predate each other? They, they were, I, I, they came, I don't think that they were overlapped very much. They were, they, you know, there'd be a culture here and, and then, there'd be some overlap and there would be someone with a better technique and they'd, they'd transition into that technique of, of napping, of flint napping, um, which gets us to the, from the atlatl to the bow and arrow. Yeah. When did that describe that transition as you know it in this country, at least? So 
they're thinking roughly 1300 years ago is all with the bow and arrow. Yeah. So the majority of the history of, of our world is at Lattle is, is guys throwing, uh, big, long, um, shafts with an atlatl yeah if you google atlatl you can get many many videos of modern guys like you said throwing yeah. atlatl it's pretty impressive to watch i mean they're they're killing mammoths with these things yeah which is just amazing to see um but then once the bow and arrow took over there was a overlap i'm sure um of when to use an atlatl when to use a bow and arrow but um and some of the arrows i have in the indian room here are really short they have trade points on them. This is the horse culture. So then we, we start, we transition from the atlatl to the bow and arrow about 1,300 years ago. And then we get into the horse culture, which isn't, the horse culture is very young. It's only yeah. a couple hundred, not even that long. When the, when the Spanish came in, there were horses and mustangs here well before the Indians figured out how to use them. So some of the tribes didn't have horses more, longer than 80 years before we- Wow before we came and, and, you know, wrecked their, their <laughs> world in many ways. But, uh, and I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, uh, you know, the, it just is what it is. Progress is progress. And, and, uh, the Indians did it to themselves and, uh, we don't want to rabbit hole down that, but from the bow and arrow pre-horse culture, which was a big, long thing, you know, to the horse culture, these arrows aren't, but about two and a half feet long. Yeah, dude. And we're looking at a, a set of ooh, eight or so uh-huh. arrows from that that time frame. Describe, you know, how that sets up. Because this, of all the things you have hanging here, I believe it's, it was the most interesting to me how not only the feathers they used, how they attached, affixed the feathers to the shaft, how they affixed the shaft to the point, what the point looks like and why it looks like it does. So the French were making trade points. The, the arrows that we're looking at now have trade, metal trade points, and they're the, the style. Um, I have a couple arrows there from the Sioux culture that are the style of, of Little Bighorn. Doesn't mean that these were used at Little Bighorn, but they were certainly uh, obtained from the Indians that fought in and around Little Bighorn right at the same time. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, 1870s. Back in the 1700s, the French trappers, they, the French would make these trade points before they'd even come over here and they'd send them with their trappers and their, their fur companies. And they'd trade these points, to the Indians, which were, you know, that a lot lighter, they, they were more accurate. They're as deadly and they wouldn't have to put the time in to make these. Every time you throw one of these, it'd break. If it, yeah. if it hit a rock, it'd break. And that's a tremendous amount of time that they'd put into that. Well, these points they might bend or they just bang it out and straighten it out and go on. So, um, the points here we see are about, uh, three inches long and very sharp, uh, and wicked looking. I mean, yeah. you, you walk in the room and it, you can see these on a, on an Indian's back. Oh and, yeah. The tip, I mean, the very tip of a, a knife almost. Yeah. You know, this, uh, probably about what, four inches long, would you say? Yeah. yeah. And so the shaft the shafts of these arrows all have different designs in them and, and they think that, that they belong to the guy who made the shaft. Hey, or is it to let the blood out when it, when it hits sticks in the animal? It's hard to say, but they have grooves in the shaft. Every one of these authentic arrows do. Um, if you guys are at the museums and, and you see these authentic arrows, you look for that, but 
then the the feathered part is about eight inches. Yeah. Um, different cultures use three feathers. Um, some cultures just use two. Um, most of them have three feathers, but uh, the Navajo, I've got three arrows up there from the Navajo culture, and they're used buzzard um, feathers. They use buzzard feathers, so um, they're pretty easy to distinguish which tribe by the style. Yeah. The Sioux would use turkey and eagle. We don't have it. It's illegal to have any type of eagle feathers, so there's no eagle feathers. Um, all the museums and and have the eagle stuff. Yeah. You can't even trade them. Yeah. No, that's, it's, that's one of the more interesting when you look at these arrows, you think of our modern day arrows and the length and you look at these arrows, you must think on horseback, you know, once these horse cultures became prevalent, they had, what do you say? 60 pound draw weights. Yeah. Up to uh-huh. 50, shoot, 60. Yeah. Pounds. They're shooting a foot and a half long arrow tip to tip. Yeah. Um, as I'm just guessing at that, obviously, but you know, talk about that. The, you know, much about the, physics of that of how they designed these bows and arrows and what they became at this in these early stages well they, they evolved um from the utility of of being on the horse shooting uh, under the neck these guys were warriors the 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 arrowheads that we're finding on the ranch they were they weren't and there's evidence i mean when the archaeologists find the skeleton skeletal remains there's no evidence of warfare there just weren't enough of them they needed each other the indians that were talking about the horse culture were major warriors there were so many of them at this point in history and to shoot under a horse's neck to hide and to carry a shield and shoot while you're running the the bows and the theirs had to be super short and you know they they could get right up next to a bison. They just, they just did. They'd run in. They, they think that it average took about four arrows for every bison. Wow. They'd come in and shoot behind. They'd run in behind and shoot them from the flank up through the liver and maybe catch a lung. And then they had the luxury of tracking. They just pull up and, and, uh, you know, track them. And so they didn't have to be accurate up to 80 plus yards. Well, if we go back to, you know, the archaic period and some of these back to away from times when, when bows became prevalent, what game were they hunting? What were their main sources of food? And what were the options, maybe animals that were here that they were unable to hunt um, or, uh, you know, un- more unsuccessful? Because I'm sure there were, you know, deer and other species that were important. Yeah, lots. So we find lots of of bones of turkeys mm-hmm. lots of turkey legs we're looking down at a yeah. pot from the oh, okay yeah paladura canyon that came out of there back in the 60s but lots of turkeys um armadillos find a lot of armadillo shells um the bones in them um coons fox coyotes um lots of deer and uh a lot of buffalo. We find lots of buffalo teeth and uh, big, huge buffalo femurs. Yeah, that's some of the more amazing stuff you're showing me too. Not this, I geek out about it. Almost everything you've shown me, 
thus far with buffalo teeth for whatever yeah. reason. Ancient buffalo teeth. It's so awesome when, when that rolls out. It's so cool. It's, uh, you know, because we think deer and stuff around here, and we just can't picture bison here. And, and no. if you can imagine this country is right now, they're so, it's so wooded. Um, back then, it was, there were very few trees and mainly around the springs and the creeks and all. Um, because of the, the natural fires and the bison herds would come through here. And so to, to, to hear that, yeah, there used to be bison here and the Indians were actually digging them and finding the evidence that, yeah, they were cutting up bison right here. We'll find parts of the camp that, that they would probably do be the butchering, the bison. We'd find lots of big knives and that's where the big bison bones are. The knives, I say big, anywhere from five to seven inches long. Do you find any evidence of how they might have butchered a bison with these tools? Yeah, we we see in some of these big bones, there's chop marks on them. And then, uh, like, we're there's some of these big chopper rocks. I mean, imagine just a big, huge piece of flint that's that's napped on one edge, so it's very finely worked, and then the you back say, end is thick. Explain what napped is, just kind of refined. So, so for napping is when they've, they actually take a, a blank piece of flint and uh, using a hammer stone, they chip off the, the flint and on each side. They'll turn it back over and chip it, make it uh, to where it's sharp. And then once it, once it has a pretty good shape to it, then they'd, that's called percussion flaking. Then they'd come back in and do what's called pressure flaking, where they take an antler tip generally and just hold a lot of pressure at a certain angle and it pops off little pieces of flint where you can get a piece that's, as sharp as any knife. Yeah. So there's evidence of them, of them, uh, you know, butchering bison right there, deer and bison. It's amazing. Yeah. Teeth, amazing. big old bison jaws coming out. In this country. I mean, we are sitting here, what, half an hour from downtown Austin, Texas. Yep. And you found evidence of thousands and thousands of year olds hunters that are, Butchering bison. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So every bit of every everything about that when I have a chance to go down to to dig with my family or by myself or whatever, it's like what are we gonna find today? Yeah. You know, yeah. It, what piece of I don't know, it, it 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 would be hard to describe what you're really finding. Because you you could say the prevailing term might be like, Hey man, you finding pieces of history. But I don't know if it's that. If it's more or less you're finding evidence of who we are or evidence every little piece is just another puzzle piece in the puzzle absolutely yeah it's you know i mean you've killed deer on this ranch and you've butchered deer yet hundreds of yards from where a ancient hunter and ancient is the term when we're talking uh we're looking at a book where one of your blades uh, was featured as the archaic period archaic blade from 2000 bc yeah found here correct yeah right here on the ranch uh, that's that's got some gravity to me it's even huge. being here with you. It's yeah. huge gravity, and it's it. Most people are like, "Oh, that's cool. I like the shape of that. That's an arrowhead, and it does not go beyond that." Yeah. And they walk in this room, and and uh, I don't know. We talked about this earlier, for that was our discussion. But they they would rather know about the furniture. It is nice furniture. Be that <laughs> it's old stuff. It's, yeah, it's really nice. It's, but it, there's no unless it's belonging to King Arthur. I'd be looking at 
right. these heads. And that's a that's an interesting distinction. And more moreover, I mean, we could talk about these cultures forever and we'll continue to do so, but what what's that say about our culture? You know, what's that say about what we value? And I think you and I are both hunters. Um and that's probably I, I self identify as like a family man, a lover of the natural world, a hunter. Like those are the, that's what I would try to describe myself as if if anyone asked. Yeah, we I'm sure you would say similar things. Well, it's what culture do we have here? Yeah. Frankly, yeah, you know, we go hunt in Spain or we go hunt in Russia or or we go hunt in Nepal. Um, that's culture. Yeah, I mean, we're staying in a 500 year old bed and breakfast while we're hunting great Osibex and or we're we're in a village and getting you know of history from these villagers that in in Nepal and the Himalayas um that have been there uh, it, when wasn't that village y'all went to um it was like four generations or five oh, generations yeah. yeah many more than that even I think um and I yeah, another rabbit hole to go down was how the weight of that that I felt there trying to learn. I felt like almost I could have stayed there my entire life and not learned everything I needed to learn from those people. Not only about the history of their place, but who they were and how they lived their lives. I'm sure that you feel that same way about holding one of these arrowheads. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But and and what what's cool about it is there is culture. This is culture now. Our society has, I feel, uh, ashamed of the fact that we're losing it. We don't care about it. All we care about is what's on the next iPad yeah. video game deal. And and you know me, I don't, I don't even have a Facebook page or Instagram, so I don't even know how I'm going to listen to this. This <laughs> I this. I'll deal. send you. I'll Dropbox you a file. <laughs> Dropbox. That's another thing I don't know. Well, you'd be the first person that on this podcast that didn't have one. Of those, so that's really nice. <laughs> that's nice for me. But, just, but yeah, I mean, it just goes to show. Like you said, what is our current hunting culture? I mean, we didn't come here to talk about that, but I I love doing that anyway because culture is just shared ideas. That's what culture is. It's the definition of the damn thing. Yeah, is a, is a collection of shared ideas that that reverberate through a people, and. This the cultures that we maybe because we're so far removed from it. My respect for for what you've amassed here is immense, just because of what it means to our own culture, but just to to what it means to our humanity. It's crazy. To well, see. thank you. It's a it's so awesome to put put this deal together and to and to have people that are passionate enough about it to come and actually want to talk about it. Um, and it's amazing to get to raise my family on the ranch and to for them to to have some semblance of, of culture instead of being stuck in Yeah. I mean you don't it doesn't matter. You can live in town and have a, an amazing culture and, and be more country than yeah than someone living out on the ranch. But whatever. It's just a neat way to do it. And well there's like I said, it's it's there's perspective in these artifacts that are uh that's invaluable that I think every hunter should have. So I mean are there places I'm not going to have everybody come to your house, but are there places around where people can, uh, that you feel like are key? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You can say Smithsonian do all that, but are there key places where, man, if you're road tripping through Texas, if you're coming through this country, if you want to understand the ancient hunting culture, which is, which is key to our own 
you know, hunting lives just in this area. Yeah. In Texas and West Texas, even, even well, more. Well, there's one of the biggest paleo um, campsites ever known in North America is called the Galt site. And uh, it's north of Georgetown, Texas. Yeah. And UT um, can, gives tours of the Galt site. And they've, that's where they found lots of club of stuff. And that's where they're talking about this, you know, 15 to 17,000 year old culture that was here before the Clovis. Clovis was thought to be here 12, five to 13. Um, but there, this Galt site is somewhere you can take the kids. Um, or if you don't have kids, if you're passionate about it, go, I mean, just go learn about it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a, one of the places you can go. There's also guys that have pay digs is what they call them, where you can, you can go online and find a private Leon ranch that, you know, it costs 20 bucks to go out there with a pick and you can dig around and find points of your own, which if you don't own, if you, if you don't own a place or have friends that own a, a place that it's, it's the, it's awesome. It's the next, you know, there's people who have huge collections that have done this. Yeah. yeah. How, how would you, if, if say I got a property and I find a beautiful point, like the one on beautiful Flint point, like the way one I'm holding, is this Flint? Yep. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm getting good. Rock identify. <laughs> Stone identify. How I find this point and I want to know more about how, how it came to be here. And a lot of the information you're saying, what, what are ways that I could find there's that book. There's, oh yeah. There's there's several books. Um, yeah. That, that one out. Yeah. Take it off. Yeah. We're gonna start reading passages from Arrowhead books now. Get get really deep. Go real deep. Oh yeah. So this Overstreet book is this weighs about. It's the best one. It weighs about as much as three thousand Arrowheads might weigh. <laughs> And then there's there's areas of the book South Central or wherever part of the United States you live, and it's going to show you what your point is. You you compare the base of it, you find it, it'll tell you how old it is, probably how much it's worth. Um, so this is the over the Overstreet Identification and Price Guide to Indian Arrowheads, twelfth edition, Robert M. Overstreet, and it is twelve hundred and sixty four pages long. So there's a few ads in there. So we'll give it 1,200 pages long, and it is, man, it's detailed. Yeah, it's the dictionary of what we do, and it's it's a lot of how. That's the first one that I, that I went to. Yeah, yeah, growing to up. Find. So if we if I found this head that's in my hand, how would I go about looking through here? So we live in the South Central area. Yep, right there. Let me see what type of point that is. That's a Bulverde, just from. So if you go so, to kind of look up Boulevardy and then it'll you yeah. compare it and uh it's going to tell you so it has a thumbnail guide of the uh, forms right. so you're you're looking at the base of the arrowhead uh-huh and the um, base is going to tell you what culture it is yeah and then once you find the culture you, just you flip, flip over to it and find the deal but that's cool not that we need to go through all this at this point there it is Boulevardy. right and so this is described as a G8, fifty-five to a hundred dollars. That's amazing. So the one you're holding there is is a G3 or four, and it's yep. you know it's worth fifty cents. But to me, it's priceless. To what? What's the G terminology? That's that's going to tell you the grade of the okay, point. Got it. 
So this point that's in the book, mm-hmm. and the book we're talking about is the finest artifacts of prehistoric Texas. And a couple of friends of mine wrote the book, Winston Ellison and Dwayne Rogers. Um, what they did is they had a panel of judges, um, about 10 judges that looked at the, the best points that they could find. And then they voted on them to make the book or not. And, uh, so that's another book you guys ought to look, look for is, the Finest Artifacts of Prehistoric Texas by Winston Ellison and Dwayne Rogers. Yeah. So a lot of these points, Dwayne Rogers is the authenticator. There's people that will fake these and try to sell them. And so I know these are real because I found them. Yeah. And if I were to sell them, someone would probably want a paper on it. And that would be the guy, Dwayne Rogers. But of course, I wouldn't sell these things. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the specifics. That's it's it's fun for me just to to give people an outlet to what do you do if you find one? Uh, I'm sure that'd be a question. But back to to what they mean because you know I'm generally a ideological, philosophical type of guy, and I as even as a hunter, I've described this podcast a lot. I think more about the um, philosophies of why we do the things we do than I do the actual doing of them. Yeah, you know, and so how to find one of these is is relevant to me, but but what they you know what they end up meaning to you is just as is relevant, if not more so. And it, so, you have do you have a a piece in here that you found like your first arrowhead or your most what you think the most prolific one you found that means a lot to you that that uh, would point out to folks. Yeah, this this point down there that my wife found when we we're oh yeah looking at the. So most of the ranch we live on, I grew up on, but there's another part of it that we bought that we added to. And when we were looking to to buy it, before we had any money, we were just walking down through the pasture there near Barton, near the creek and right in the tire rut was a perfect point. Wow, and my wife point. found it and she said, yes, we're, it's meant to be. <laughs> this is us. I mean, this we're going to yeah. live here. This is our deal. I thought right you were about to say that. I dropped out on one knee. Then I dropped down. <laughs> well, you married me. No, I'm still real scared. No. <laughs> I don't no, think like, we were married quite yet. But. Uh, I thought you had an airhead, uh, an engagement arrowhead. Yeah. So, but that one, and then that, that point that's seven and a half inches. I was by myself hand digging. That was before oh, the yeah, machinery. It's beautiful. And, all. and it's paper thin. Beautiful. And that's the one that's in this in the book here. But beautiful. That's a beautiful piece right there. Just the tip was coming sticking out and I was like, Oh, it's just one of these dart points and you know, six inches of it hanging out and I almost fell over when I pulled it out. Unbelievable. And t- to your best recollection, there's so many rabbit holes, so much stuff I'm interested to know. Lately I've been telling you guys about land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land could be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound, 
as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. Comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Describe kind of the different points you found and how you go about identifying what it is and what it's used for. I mean, are there... Does each culture, does each people have a different type of signifier? I mean, yeah, so, I know they do. You explained some of it to me, but try to try to take people through uh, everything that's here and, and how it's identified. Well, there's there are points that we call drills that are long that that essentially look like a drill. Yeah. So you have three. I'll, I'll have some photos of this up. But you have three displays here. I'll just take you through the the far yes. left displays. So the the drill points, all of their base or a lot of the bases tell you what type of point it is, what culture what it what culture it was, how old was that culture. Um, that's that's what the base signifies. So it's really easy to tell. I know most of them in the area. Whenever they come off the table, I grab it. I said, "There's a part analysis." We talk my digging buddy and or family and I'd say that's cool there's a Boulevardi or there's a Casterville or or Lang um, or Lang Tree and so 
the cultures that were here were the Pardinalis culture and the Langtree culture. And, and they really, they're just giving them names because they were prehistoric. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're from tiniest little things called um, gravers, you know, just that have little tiny points on them, maybe to, to make jewelry with, to big knives that were, most of these knives, and this is good that we're going to talk about this because someone sees a seven and a half inch knife and the, the first thing they say is spear and they think of some Indian carrying a big spear and stabbing a guy. Well, back then, these, these cultures weren't at war with each other. So they're cutting grass with them and the archaeologists have studied the wear patterns on the edges and found that the majority is fiber, cutting fiber. So they used a massive amount of grass in their to cook and to steam these acorns. And that's yeah. mainly what they ate is acorns yeah. and some meat. But then, so there's big knives and then the dart points that would be used on the atlatl. Um, some of them are, are small because they've been resharpened multiple times and some of them are- So when you say small, how about how long? An inch and a half or an inch yeah. even. Yeah, you'd be surprised how some of these when you show dart points or even arrowheads, how small they actually are. You know. Yeah, there's some of the some of these arrowheads. If you have a dime, you can fit three of them without any overlap. Yeah, and they're killing buffalo with them. A lot of people mistake it as quote bird points, but these are bison killers. You know, like I say, you put a few in, and you have the luxury of tracking them. But so from knives to drills. To big choppers, um, to you know, to do some major bone breaking because they would use that marrow. Um, to, um, you know, real serrated edges to, yeah. to so they could cut bone with, or yeah. I would imagine they'd cut a lot of stuff. And there's also what we found lots of jewelry, what we call gorgets where they make them from slate and they have all kinds of awesome designs in them. Then the holes are inset. They'd wear them around their neck or, or um, you know, pieces of jewelry that were sewn into, to clothes, um, all, all sorts yeah. of things. The, the little round balls, game pieces, we call them. They're in all the mounds around here. They're like marble, but they're made from limestone. Wow. Perfectly round little balls, just the size of a, of a marble that, uh, I'm sure that you know were used for game pieces. What does that tell you about how they lived their lives? I mean, how do you how do you imagine they gathered in a place? What did their what did these ancient hunters what did they prioritize? What did they look for in gathering? And then you know, you said there were small bands of people, seven, eight, yeah, less than ten people. That's what they think, and I can imagine tons of of time for the men to 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 being hanging out in camp and or on the hill making these pieces, making their artifacts, making their, it took a lot of effort to, to make these shafts on the atlatls. Um, they'd kill a deer and they'd dry the meat and that would get them through for quite a while. You know, the, the ladies I'm sure would be out gathering firewood and, and, uh, acorns. And so lots of community time, but no, probably no sense of time. Yeah. And so they had a lot of time on their hands in my, I'm sure they did. And so if you could see, I used to think of, of these archaic folks as, um, 
you know, just looking kind of drab. And, um, but some of the pieces that we found in these caves that have been preserved, the colors of their clothing, the jewelry they wore, I'm sure we'd be stunned at, at what we would see if we walked into a village of, of these guys. Yeah. It's pretty, some pretty ornate stuff. Yeah. And there's, you know, some of the jewelry you have here, you think, what? Well, there's all kinds of... Even of the knives and the cutlery and things that they ochre use. Ochre is what we call it. It's they'd get, they'd get limestone and they'd, they'd dye it yeah. and, and pack it together. And then, um, you know, it can be, you know, yellows yeah. and reds and oh, we will. find it all the time. And so they had a lot of color too. Yeah. That yeah. was interesting how you talked about, you know, how they ate and how they, you know, gathered around these places and what really have through finding their artifacts of artifacts from their way of life, how you can really map out how they lived, you know, in the micro sense and the macro sense, the sense that, yeah. you know, how they traveled and how nomadic they really were. Well, if you hadn't seen the, when, um, when Shockey's over there and with the Maasai yeah. sitting around that campfire and, and they're just talking about the ancient stories and they're today they're talking to each other and they're not texting each other or they're not, you know, they don't have a TV tray sitting there staring at some senseless show. I mean, they're actually learning their culture and, and uh, I can see them just gathering around talking about laughing and talking about the day's hunt. And when so-and-so was about to shoot the deer and tripped and, you know, and they were laughing and, and, uh, in a sense, uh, the biggest worry was eating, but it, it was plentiful around here. Yeah. And you can always, you can survive on grasshoppers. I mean. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you said acorns. That was not something that I would have guessed. Yeah. Lots of, lots of acorn ash. I mean, they find, they've studied, of course, the archaeologists have studied the, the hearth and it's just 85% acorns, wow. lots of grass seed. So they take the seeds and they, they grind them. Another deal that we hadn't talked about is they use grinding stones, these limestone grinding stones and the grit that comes off of them and the teeth that we find in these, wow, that, you know, these, uh, skeletal remains that archeologists have come across their teeth are worn down to the bone. And so lots of, of, uh, abscess, lots of death by, uh, their teeth. And it's funny. That's my, that's my profession. Yeah. Is, I was going to say you're oral and maxillofacial surgery. So it's, it's intriguing to me, the culture that, uh, now that we're on teeth real quick, the culture, the Castile culture out there that in West Texas, they would chew lechuguilla They'd cook it and then chew the pulp out of it and spit those quids out. And that's what I was... Yeah, you're showing me that earlier. We have a lot of that here. But that had a lot of carbohydrate in it and they, the skeletal remains, lots of decay. Yeah. Big evidence of big abscesses. Oh, wow. And so I imagine it was a terrible... Well, you're saying there's a lot of, you know, a lot of bowel problems, a lot yeah. of gut problems, a lot of teeth problems, just unhealthy living. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that we can't imagine. There's no way we, I don't think there's any way that we can imagine that. And in a previous podcast, I can't remember which conversation it was. I talked about wanting to find in the modern sense of the word, you and I both traveled to Nepal and there's some similarities there, but in the modern sense of the world, 
someone that has to kill to live. You know, the Discovery Channel loves to put on their, you know, the Kilcher family lives in Alaska and lives mm-hmm. off the land and they choose to live that way. Well, the rub there is they choose to live that way. If they wanted to get in a plane, fly into town and have a hamburger, they could. They just choose to live off the land, which is admirable. But they still have a choice. And I know there, I know in this world there are many indigenous, the Chamane people that Steve Ranella has traveled and been around in South America. Um, there's that are still living life with thinking about food as the necessity they have to find it. They have to forage for it. They have to find it. They have to live off what's there. They have to, they don't choose to, there's no, uh, there's no other way to do it. They have to harvest and kill everything that's to sustain their culture, sustain their people, sustain their own lives. And that mindset to me is one I would love to sit and explore as long as I could. Yeah. It's, that is something that's, I can't imagine um, when I was in the Arctic hunting uh, muskox, my, one of my guides was born in an igloo. So we're not far removed from some of the people that actually get to talk about how, how that really is. I mean, the gravity that they feel that they have to kill. um, Yeah. But then again, what was it? A huge, deal to them or or would they be like well we're just not going to eat meat for a month but we're going to be fine on acorns yeah These- yeah how it how that sets up you know yeah. i always you know you can read about this and study about this um i hope to do more of course but how yeah the spiritual nature of hunting worshiping the animal worshiping the ground worshiping the place you lived and how that manifests itself is an interesting concept in and of that why was that happening? Was it happening because they felt that if they did that, that the natural world would then present them the opportunity to eat meat? Or did did they do that because their worlds revolved around that animal so much so that it became a deity or it spoke to them in such a way? So it's interesting to think about someone who's never known anything other than waking up and looking at the world around them and thinking about how they were going to sustain themselves. And we don't, we, we have no idea how that f- thinks or feels well, as much as you and I have traveled to the end of the world to try to, at some level, find it, right. to find that feeling. We'll never know what the guy that made that air point in your hand felt like mm-hmm. when he killed an animal, whether he felt pure joy because he knew that his people would be fed or whether he felt some sort of sadness or, or what connection he has to the animal. Well, it's in, in your hunt in Nepal, you guys are talking about if you if you can kill an animal and not have any sense of remorse at all, then you might you want to sit sit in the tree a little bit longer and do a little bit of reflecting of some yeah. sort. But you know, I and, and again, is it killing or harvesting? I well, we kill the animals, and I I have a great time doing that. I love to to kill. It's fun. It is, it's and it, but it, it it's the DNA that we share with these guys. Yeah. yeah, and I respect the animals to sense that you, you can see how I respect these animals oh, out here. What I've yeah. provided these animals on this ranch, yeah. and we kill one, we we kill one buck a year and three does, and 
it's just an amazing place for these animals to live. Yeah. So well, we, we respect. Yeah, some level of just understanding this this kind of tapestry of human life that we'll never know how they felt. Yeah. Like, it is impossible to understand how they felt. And you have a – this is a buffalo hide on your wall behind you. Yeah, it's a buffalo calf. A, a buffalo calf hide. That is – it's just a tanned, you know, poorly tanned hide or an ancient. It's yeah, hide. it's from the, it's from pre-reservation. You want me to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, please do because I was now I'm looking at it, I'm like let's, let's talk about this thing. So this this hide was found in upstate New York, a home built back in the 1700s that they were remodeling, and in the attic, it was an old military home, and in the attic, balled up in the corner, they found this. They rolled it out, and it's a war trophy from the Indian Wars, right before Little Bighorn, when they'd ran, you know, the government would come in, and they'd uh, essentially destroy these villages, trying to wipe the Indians out. I mean, there's no other way, you know, about it. That's what they were doing. They'd take the loot. They'd take all the stuff that's cool to them. It's just as cool to those guys as it is to us. They'd send it back east, and they would uh, use, you know, they call them war trophies. So anyway, this one survived, and it has about 15 different scenes of, it's one battle depicted here of the Sioux fighting the Pawnee, and uh, the brilliant colors and the yeah. the artistry. It's these Indians riding in the horses. Most of the Pawnee are on foot, and the uh, Sioux warriors with their brilliant head dresses some of them were had more feathers than others and that depicted their social class there in the in the tribe but they're they're having a full-on battle no guns all bow and arrow and lances and uh it's just a piece of art that is extremely rare yeah that, that uh by getting to know the people in the subculture world of of artifacts that I was fortunate enough to come across and uh, now it's displayed in the Indian room. Yeah. That's just, just amazing. I was looking at the, the I guess you call them illustrations. The yeah. Depictions of what those folks look like. And that's such a striking, you know, it way gives, to illustrate it. It gives color to, yeah. to their, to, it's hard to look back in time and see it in, in color. Um, it's like that country song Jamie Johnson sings. But anyway, it's hard to see that in color. You go back, that was a couple hundred years ago. You go back eight, six, eight thousand years, or you go back to the Clovis culture, and it's not just buckskin, just one color. I mean, these guys had these brilliant shells from that they were trading from the West Coast with inset uh, stone, different types of turquoise and all inset. Um, just some amazingly ornate um, dresses and with elk teeth, with a hundred sets of bugling teeth on one elk skirt. Unbelievable! That the ladies wore. Wow. Um, well, I've got a couple. I see. If I can pull them up here. It's the first time I've ever kind of asked for some questions from uh, past listeners about the topic. There's a few good ones here. We'll go. We'll just do two of them. Chase Rutherford. It asked, uh, well, you already kind of covered this, but it'd be interesting to get back over. Do you have any Clovis points and 
what were they used for specifically? Do you, you know, let's talk about the, you said you've not found Clovis here at all. I hadn't found Clovis here, but, but I believe there to be Clovis. Oh, absolutely. There I've have some of my, uh, digging buddies, um, have found Clovis and, uh, the last one, a buddy found one in Johnson city, which from the back roads here is about 15 minutes. So absolutely there's Clovis sites, but the, the Clovis sites are so much harder to find because they didn't, they didn't cook in this midden style camp. Yeah. Um, and then they were just so nomadic. They may have been there for three nights and maybe left two piece, two Clovis points or none. None. Yeah. And so a lot of the Clovis pickups are missed shots or they shoot at something and they can't find their, their shaft. And then we find them. It may not necessarily, that's just a random find. And so the Clovis, they were, they hunted uh mammoth. Um, that's what the Clovis, you know, Clovis, New Mexico, where they found that carcass, the mammoth carcass yeah. with five Clovis points in it. Um, but I'm sure they're, they're Clovis cultures hunting armadillos with them and deer and, and whatever else that they can throw at. Yeah. What's the importance of the, I mean, I've, I've heard and read a little about the Clovis culture. It seems like a, of those that know a little bit about ancient hunters, an important culture to know. Can you like place that in a sense of time? They're, they're thought to be the first peoples of North America to, to inhabit North America. And that's why they're so, that's why they're so important. And, and, um, so they date back to 12, five, yeah. 12,500 years ago. And they went extinct about 10,000 years ago. They went extinct with the bison and thickest here. And, yeah. Um, which is a skull on pointing at a, um, buddy of mine has a big bison jump on his ranch in Wyoming. Yeah. Those are just Frank Neville. Ridiculous. Ridiculous artifacts there. But yeah, okay. That's, uh, so that's what they're hunting. They're hunting yeah. whatever they can eat. They're shooting them at turkeys. Yeah. They're, they're just surviving. I mean, big time surviving. Yeah. And, uh, that's good. Look up the clothes culture. If you don't know much about it, there's a lot of interesting books and, and things out there. I'll try to throw some links to some of my the flute in the club in the point is what's yeah. That, yeah. Let's get back to that about, as well. about that. It has a big flute that runs up the middle of it where they would haft it, where the, the stick would go. It's like a, almost like a indentation. Yeah, they'd flute. bang a big channel of flint channel. out of the middle of it yep. and it'd make it thinner so they could put it down the shaft easier and then they could use their sinew to tie it on in the asphaltum yep. or the and pine so the, pitch. The book here we're looking at is the paleo, the paleo period of the Clovis 10,000 BC to 9,000 BC. Some of these uh, points that are channeled out in the center. Interesting looking But pieces. that's why he's asking about the, that's the find. I mean, you find a Clovis it, whether it's broken or just the base or whatever, and you're you've found something on this continent. Yeah, that's the oldest, oldest people. That well, ever. we're I think we're all collectively rooting for you to get <laughs> pull a Clovis out. No, we just got to dig deeper. Yeah, uh, well, we got the tools to do it. Yes, sir. Chris, I don't know how to say your last name. Sorry, Chris Gleam, G L E I G L E I M. Said I'm really interested in the skills of our ancient hunting ancestors that they acquired and how those are passed on to us today and how the use or misuse of them affects our everyday lives, specifically the skills. Yeah. So I can just picture these guys and a, a friend of mine, um, who has this amazing collection of, of cave stuff has a whole collection of little kids toys. And 
doll bow and arrows made for little dolls that are like this, that are about oh, three wow. inches tied perfectly with all the, the to scale everything. And so while our kids are playing, you know, playing video games or jumping rope or whatever, they're, they're playing shooting games with their atlatls. Yeah. To learn, to learn. Yeah. And they're, you know, I'm sure I can, we're picturing them sitting up over a great water source or, or a big of the few trees, the, the oak tree that's dropping the acorns and the deer there, they're up in the top and they're waiting on that deer to come in. And the, um, you know, they're a lot more silent. They had to be their stalking abilities and their tracking abilities were, if you've, if you've been to Africa and, and seen the trackers there, uh, it's just mind blowing what yeah. they can look at across a hundred yards and see one blade of grass that's been over yeah. and know what direction, whatever. And see, these are things that yeah, they read like the oxidation in the yeah, sand, exactly with old tracks. Yeah, how many hours? And so these are things that we, um, with our awesome bows, don't need to learn, and so we don't. Most yeah. of us don't learn that. Even the the most skilled hunters. Um, bow hunters and the guys that are doing long bows and all that are amazing but but we're missing such a big piece of the yeah of well the i think pie. about even your passion like if your passion was a river the bigger this river gets the more tributaries it has you know so as you find more heads and get more passionate dig deeper you you have to almost by proxy learn about the natural world here the trees the rock what type of rocks are in the ground what type of soil um what to look for, you know, in that soil. And so you, like you said, become an amateur archaeologist just by your own, the passion where it leads you as that, you know, the river of your passion gets bigger. It's going to branch off into other knowledge bases you might not have if you didn't love hiding arrowheads. Right. I totally agree. And, and you know, and back to his point on, on the, the skills and all, it's, it takes just a few, maybe 10% of, of the knowledge that if the hunter has to kill a big elk, you just, you, if you are willing to get off the couch and go find one and look, shoot through your scope and he's dead. Yeah. But you missed where was that elk last night and what path was he on and what was he eating and where do I need to set up and where do I need to set my next camp Yeah. for my family to live three more months knowing the, the, the way that the elk travel this certain time of year. And, and there's so much yeah. stuff that we're missing that, that we don't need, but, but would be awesome to know. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's an awesome question. It, it just, that really, that question right there was, you could sit around here and have a, have a drink and, and talk for hours about. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, when I was the editor of Peterson's hunting magazine or one of the editors, um, we always every year did like an old school issue where we would celebrate some sort of old school thing. But our old school was like, oh, the 80s. <laughs> In the 70s, what did they do? We never thought to, or I haven't seen anybody think to really look hard at how these ancient hunters lived their lives and why they lived the way they did and, and how they, you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of years here where you've got from the Clovis people to the Folsom people such an evolution in the human body the human brain the human uh the human ability that we can't conceive of that 
yeah, so you're now you know, a thousand years later, we're looking at in the Paleo period, Folsom points, which are much more diminutive, still, still ornate almost in the way that they were. Oh, incredibly, they were made. So even the older the, you know, you've uh, there's some old times around here that you find a crude airhead, and they're like, oh, that's old, that's old. No, yeah, the this really is- old stuff is the stuff that is truly a work of art, and and. and- it seems like you're looking at the Folsom people here in 9000 BC or even back over to the Clovis people. And they're the first few people in 7000. These are, if somebody handed that to you today, you would say you would want to put it in a case, even if oh, you didn't yeah. know what it was. It's I, such a beautiful piece of stone. I did find a plain view, which is 8000 BC when I was hunting uh, antelope with, with Phil out in New Mexico. Oh, nice. Yeah. Better, yeah. And it's in it. I left it on the ranch, you know beautiful these are beautiful pieces yeah and it, it's it doesn't as rudimentary as it is it just it doesn't seem that way to look at that these photos the beautiful photos in this book you can't hardly machine these no no any better i mean it's just amazing yeah. and so the credit that that i give these ancient people now as to where I, you know seeing them in black and white back when I was growing up. These people were amazing people and I'd love to hang out with them. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. I do. I mean, yeah. I love their culture. I, I just, that, that's what's the driving force in all this. Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I've come to appreciate perspectives of all kinds. And the reason why we record these conversations is to try to let, have, introduce your perspective to other people, right? And then maybe it's something you've said during this conversation can help change the way that they think about our history as hunters or why hunting might be important to them. And they're not even really sure about how to break that down in their own minds. Like your love for these ancient people um, goes way beyond just possessing the things they they made one time. You know, yeah. what's what's crazy about it is the, the schools don't, don't even teach this stuff yeah. at all. They're I mean, like, yeah, is, the... This is some of the more interesting being in this country. Now, when we were talking about earlier, I'm getting ready to leave Texas probably for good and move to Montana, set up home up there. And then part of thinking about my leaving here, because my son was born here, you know, so it's an important place for me. And uh, part of my leaving here was trying to have, trying to figure out how to have conversation with people like yourself that born, raised, grew up and have this intense appreciation for the natural world here. Um, because as, as different as Montana and Texas are, they both have their own stories. Mm-hmm. And if you live in a place uh, and don't know the story, the history of the place where you live, start reading. Because that's, I mean, having the connection, family connection you have to this ground, but then also the connection to the ancient humans, that's pretty unique. Yeah, it's special. awesome. And something that you can't, nobody can duplicate that. You know, you can't duplicate that by going to the Smithsonian and looking around the connection you have to these heads in this place. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Well, we love it, man. We love it. Well, and it comes across. Your kids are awesome. Running around, <laughs> finding their heads. The kids. You're, yeah. So your daughter, your oldest daughter is going with you to the Brooks range. Do you tell going me? Going to the Northern part of the Brooks range. Just recently, a part that just recently opened, um, to hunting. Uh, our yeah. guide has that big new concession up there and lots of sheep. She'll be 10 next uh, August, and my dad took me, took my brother and me when we were when I was 10, and he, he was 12, 
uh, to the Brooks range and we both got caribou and doll sheep. And it's, uh, so my daughter's, she's like, all right, well, when I'm 10, we're going on. I was like, you betcha. <laughs> Your daughters. Are so, great. yeah, you raised them to be brave, brave young ladies. Uh, and that's awesome. Going as I started hunting when I was 11, I think maybe and I was just shooting spikes on the, <laughs> in Maryland, but, um, yeah, you've traveled the world. Yeah. Made it to Nepal. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. I don't know how many of us Nepal hunters there, there are, I guess Nepal hunters. Well, the they only term. have what, 20 tags a year. And, and it was closed for how a decade, yeah. if not longer with their civil war. You got to really, that Nepal deal is pretty special. I mean, you have to really want to challenge yourself and to, to get out and. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you, you went last year. Well, not last year. It just was, got back. Just in, got in, back uh, in April. April. Um, a year after I went, well, if you've not heard the podcast I did with Cole Kramer on the subject, you should listen to it. Um, so I won't tell, retell my story anymore, but how'd you find going into Nepal? I mean, it's a, like I said, if there's a rare group till now that have gone that can tell stories, but I'm sure more people will go in the future. So it was amazing to get to, to be in the Himalayas, to be at 18,000 feet. So we, when we went, we thought that the snowpack was going to be heavy and we'd be hunting sheep at 12 to 14,000. Yeah. We show up and, and I could tell the guide was dodging the, the question off the, when we got off the airplane. And finally he's like, look guys, no snow, not much snow this year. You're going to be hunting at 18,000 feet every day. And, uh, the worst part about it was Kathmandu flu. Yeah. <laughs> I got it too. Ben had it pretty bad. Woo, yeah. At least we can, we can. Sit and have whiskey and talk about Kathmandu flu, man. I that just you. means like, oof. that. But that we were talking about that that place. Um, I'll stop interrupting your story, but the, the place is just in, a, uh, in the Western sense of the feeling, an assault on all on your body, the air quality, the food quality, just everything is is assaulted. Then when you get to eighteen thousand feet, your entire, you know your circadian rhythms are being assaulted oh, yeah. by the way you, you know, way you sleep. Well, we were, you know, we get up to 16,000 and the, the guides are like, here's some sheep. This, and I'm like, well, where's the rock? I got a, you know, diarrhea bad. And so, man, it was, it was three days eating rice. And, uh, thank God I brought some heater meals. I yeah. read an article that said, bring some, I brought, so we could have some, spaghetti or something or whatever just enough to survive but we were going along there for at one point my hunting buddy i looked at him and he looked like hell and i said kurt you all right man he goes russell i'm just trying to survive yeah and and i could see that he was not joking and he's like we made it to that day and then in camp that night he goes i swear to god i I thought we were going to have to call in a dang helicopter or something yeah. to save me <laughs> it's good to hear that but, I had, he killed think, a huge sheep. I know it. Like the biggest sheep, sheep I've ever seen. Although, you know, when we went there, we didn't see that many because we were struggling to get close to them. But yeah, that's that's a probably a whole nother podcast about a journey like that. But it's it's cool to see somebody like yourself that is able to do this at home and still travel and do those things and bring your kids along. I mean, the well, in the, uh, you know, I was bringing Arrowhead with me when I go. Um, that when I was at the Hickoria, yeah, that the grinding stone there, you know. The the cool deal about that was talking to an, a, a true Apache, my my good buddy now, uh, Bernard Inez. Uh, man, 
just getting to hear that side of things. But anyway, yeah. that, we, we can go down all kinds of different deals. But talking to, to our guide in Nepal around camp about his culture and what artifacts are they finding and all. And I brought home a 60 or 50 year old knife that was used in their camp. That's just archaic and just total badass. Yeah. Chopped up shocky sheep. <laughs> chopped up one of the big. You get a fifty-year-old knife that chopped up Jim Shockey's yeah blue, blue sheep. I got blood. it. I asked him for it, and he said, "You know, you you're going to respect it, and and you, your passion for it, dude. To, to take it home and display it, and tell people about Nepal." Yeah. Well, that's it too. I mean, people we get caught up in this idea that you know, going over to Nepal might be some trophy hunt where you're just looking to bring back the antlers or the antlers or the horns in this case and tell everybody how great you are by doing it. But it means so much more as a person to, to venture over there and do that and to know in the going that the animal will be consumed in its totality. Um, that's a huge part of it, of course, but, but to see the artifacts you brought back and we were comparing stories about what I'm up brought back, what you brought back and the respect we have for those people and the culture and the, and the chance to go and do that. I mean, there, you know, any pushback someone might give you, especially the way that you've displayed your hunting life and, and artifact life here in this room is preposterous. Um, not that there, there's anybody that ever has challenged my going to Nepal or yours, but just to say like for proof positive of respect for culture, respect for animals, respect Absolutely, for people. Yeah. Um, it's here, man. It's, it's, it's in the walls. Yeah, it is. It's cool. We love it. Uh, we do. Well, that's a, that's a good good hour and a half. That's good to end on the fact that you take these arrowheads to the places you go and give them to the people that you meet. I think that's a damn good way to bring Texas to. Uh, yeah. Texas. It'll yeah. be fun for me because you gave me a nice display of arrowheads from, from your ranch here, so I'm going to take those to Montana and display them. Yeah, it'll be cool in the office. Real yeah, cool. Real cool. Well, thank you, Russell. Alrighty. See ya. That's it. That's all. Episode number 25 is in the books. Russell Cunningham, thank you for letting us into your home and letting us into your life to hear about you and your family and what you do. Russell did ask me uh, after the fact to to explain to everybody that uh, in Texas on your own private property, you can uh, dig and keep these artifacts that we spoke of in the podcast. So uh, in a lot of other states, that is not the case. Um, but here in Texas, that is. So just want to make sure make that clear that um, Russell is respectful of the land and of the history of the place and understands what he's doing here in Texas, finding artifacts. And so hopefully you learned a little bit about the history of, of this place and some of the hunting cultures that called this place home. So that's it for number 25. Number 26 is coming up next. Number 26 is going to be with a, with a fairly special man. Uh, that man is Eddie Reese. Coach Eddie Reese. Eddie Reese is the winningest NCAA coach of all time. He is the head swimming coach for the last, oh man, since 1979 at least. That's why many years that is. Uh, the head swimming coach of the University of Texas. Eddie's a hunter. Eddie has used hunting in his past to help train Olympic athletes who gold medals and is somebody who values his time outside. So he's another extraordinary man, 77 years old. We're going to hear from him next time on the Hunting Collective. Till then, go to the website, hit us up, and tell us how we did. 
keep listening, keep enjoying the conversation. Keep praising. Keep telling us how we can get better. See ya. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels. It can also generate income in both the near and long term, like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations. Check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made, innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business.